So, John, thanks so much for joining us again. Where we left it last time was talking about air traffic control. And uh, that, I think people found that a useful way of thinking about portfolio management. So you've got some other stuff you'd like to share today. So uh, um, what are we going to go through today? Well, what we're going to cover today is the how to get the plan in place using a zero-based planning technique. So having talked previously about the need to balance demand and supply and recognise the constraints that you've got within which you're trying to get things delivered, we're now going to go through how to get a safe plan in place. Awesome. So without much further ado, let's get on and talk about that. The plan, zero-based plan, and the reason I call it zero-based is because it does start with zero on it. Now, the usual approach to portfolio planning, first of all, is annual because it's derived from the annual budgeting exercise. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, because it's derived from the annual budgeting exercise, it usually starts with its first and sometimes only constraint, which is the budget that will be spent on change for next year. Yeah. And thirdly, list of projects, as it inevitably is rather than a portfolio, is compiled on the basis that not at the highest level, where the board collectively agrees what it should invest in next year, but at the next level, where the board members then go to their constituencies and decide for themselves what they need in order for them to prosper in their own area. There's usually some arrangement in the centre, often group finance, not always, but often group finance, that's got some sort of um, cross-business responsibility. Some initiatives, that, like regulatory stuff, for example, might affect more than one area and it doesn't naturally fall in one versus another. But what they do is they go away, they build up their lists, and then at that point, the lists come together. And it's that at that point when you realise you've got a list that's about twice as long as it needed to be, even from a budgeting point of view. So, for example, you said, well, we can only spend $100 million next year on um, a change. Um, so what are we going to spend it on? Well, the constituents come back with, well, here's our rollover list because we haven't finished everything we thought we needed to this year. Here's the stuff we've already committed to next year. So they're givens. And here's the stuff that we haven't committed to yet, but we really should because it's critical. And if we don't do it next year, we're buggered the year after. Mm. And everybody has got a similar story to tell. And therefore, you've ended up with a huge list, well over budget. And at that point, that's the only concern. Never mind whether we can physically do it or not. The fact is we can't afford it. So try to pare it down to what can be afforded. Often, that is extremely difficult. But even if they get there, then, and sometimes they get there by, I was going to say, um, foul means rather than fair. And a good example of that recently was, well, well, we'll say we're not doing it, but we will do it and we'll do it at risk because we think we'll underspend elsewhere because we, we won't get stuff done as quickly as we've planned to do it. So there'll be some spare financial capacity that will be able to pay for these things. And that was the only consideration that they used whether there'd be money available. And so they leave the things on the list anyway. I tend to call that game playing. Yeah, it, it, well, it, it is. It's also shying away from cracking the real problem and it's pretending yeah. that it'll just go away if you yeah. ignore it. And, but it comes back to this. Strategy. 
Sorry? It's an avoidance strategy. It is an avoidance strategy. And, uh, and I, I, I can understand why, if you're in a place where you've got a whole raft of stuff to do, you can't volunteer anything not to be done or, can, or, or to be deferred. It has to be it is critical, so why wouldn't you get on with it? And, and you're driven by a project mindset. Mm. What we've got to do what I, is break out of that. So what I've done with the planning is not start, or not encourage, sometimes I have any choice, they've gone and done it anyway, but avoid going to the long list to try to come down to a short list. Even though everything on the long list is critical, start with zero. And if you start with zero, you've got to argue stuff on. The way you argue stuff on is simply by showing that it's worthy of investment. This is about um, linking all of this with what the organisation is trying to do. So what are we trying to achieve? And where do we need to invest? Mm. And as a result of answering that second question, sorry. where do we need to... Sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, who does the arguing here, John? You say people argue it onto a list. Who, who's the oh, one right. arguing? Yeah, this, this is the leadership team, basically. Okay, but are these the constituents, the ones who've gone out to their own area? Yeah. To so, okay. so, so what I've found often, not always, but often, is that, um, say, the board or the executive, they will advise, I'll give some guidelines and some advice, but they'll leave the decision to the individual members who go back to their constituencies or their business units and then put their mandate together for what they need to do to achieve their objectives for the year, and then come back and put it on the table. But by the time they get there, they've got some psychological, let alone anything else like contractual, commitment to what they've put on the table with a pretty good case for it all underpinning it. Because up until that point, they haven't had to put it alongside anybody else's and had it joined up. But it's when that joined up message comes together, it's at that point you begin to see the holistic picture, the investment that they're trying to get the organisation to embark upon. And it's that group or their deputies that have been given authority to act as their proxy that then get involved in a horse trading Mm. and arguing, I can't afford to take anything off. Or what happens is they'll go sit around the executive table and they'll agree the principle that we must defer stuff because we've just, we've just got too much to do and we can't afford it. And again, it, it's key. It's the, it's the driver there has been the affordability, not the capability and the capacity. We can't afford it. We haven't got the budget, so we're going to have to take stuff off. Mm. And if you show them a ski slope of demand, which is all the stuff they've put on the table, suggests that from January through to August, everything gets done – and gradually tails off as stuff gets delivered. So by the time you get to August, there's nothing left. You've got to fire everybody. That also helps stimulate a bit of a discussion. But what I found is that at the top table, they all agree readily the principles. I mean, who wouldn't? But when they go back to their constituents and their constituencies, they can't agree amongst themselves what to volunteer. It's all a bit like a Mexican standoff. No one's going to give up their bit because someone else will grab hold of it. And once they've given it up, it's going to be extremely difficult to get it back. I, I say start with zero. And the means by which you get on the list is going back to addressing that question, which this same group needs to answer, is what are we trying to achieve as a business, holistically, as, a, as an organisation, what are we trying to achieve and where do we need to invest? Mm. And each initiative 
needs to be able to show that it is, is adding to the investment in the right way. It's doing something that will take us to where we need to get to. And well, in some cases... point there, John. Because sorry? That, that's, that's the interesting point for me because I'm sitting here thinking of parallels in my past when do, doing this sort of thing, but at the project level, using Moscow prioritisation for people, mm. arguing things onto the requirements list. Yeah. And giving them the sort of the, the boundary, if you like. So look, what's a must-have requirement? Well, the must-have requirement, as we would define it, is that, look, the system can't possibly work without this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just curiously wondering, do you have a sort of, um, firstly, a level of priority in how you prioritise? And is, do, do these levels have certain boundaries or questions you can ask them that would uh, get them to think about what's valuable, what's not? Yeah. Yes. Now, ironically, less so than I used to. So, um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I've used Moscow in order to filter out the things that are, let's say, have a discretionary element to them, at least as far as timing is concerned. Okay. The problem most organisations are facing today is that because this portfolio problem has remained unaddressed for so long, such a high proportion of their current workbook is must do that before you even start the conversation, the should do's and the could do's have either been relabeled or have fallen by the wayside. They don't even bother bringing them to the table anymore. Such a large proportion of the list of things to do is associated with yesterday's stuff that either was completed but not as it should have been mm. or was de-scoped uh, deliberately in order to fit a timeline mm. and so has got stuff that needs still to be done. And that stuff is now being done alongside what was supposed to be done next. Mm. That doesn't get the full attention it requires. So that then falls short. So there's a bit of leftover from that that it is then carried forward and so on. So it's perpetuated. So over time, the proportion of new, brand new stuff in your portfolio gets less and less and less. Mm. And your portfolio year after year after year starts to look very familiar, yeah. which means that when you come to prioritization, you end up with everything or a large proportion of it is priority one or must do. Mm. So I argue, I make a joke of it in the book about it used to be Moscow, M-O-S-C-O-W. Now it's just Mo, which is where everything is expected to be done in. A mo, so so must or won't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah, it is must or won't. Um, you can't stop at that point because where you're trying to get to is a manageable list of things to do. However, it is important for these guys to remember that you are not saying no to the critical stuff. That's important, I think. Yes, yeah. it absolutely is. I'm not saying no. You've got to forego that. I am actually telling you that if you adopt this approach, you'll get it sooner than if you carry on at the moment. So rather than no, it's not yet. It's not yet. Mm. But if, I, if we didn't do this, I'd also be saying not yet, and I'd be adding to that, and nor when you expect it either, mm. as you will know from experience. What I'm giving them, I, you can say, is you've got a choice. You can kick it off in January and your plan independently put together of any other work that's going on at the same time suggests you'll get it in August mm. you know from your own experience that that's a bit ambitious mm. 
You may not get it until December. You may not get it until the following spring. If I told you to start in June and you get it in December, almost certainly, you can work with the date of December on a more confident basis. You can't possibly work with August because there's a huge chance you won't get it. Thereafter, you're not really sure when you're going to get it. So how can you properly prepare for it? Mm. You can't. It's predictability you need. And if you can predict with some conviction it will get it in December, then you know what to do with it. If you're saying that, well, that's too late, well, so we're fine. But at least you know that now. Because mm. it's probably going to be late anyway. If you built your organisation around it being ready by August, and there's a huge chance it won't be, then you've probably not done the right thing. This thing which I quite often help people to understand, one of my own analogies, is the, is the bath water. The idea, if, you, if they say to you, well, look, it's too late, okay, well, look, there's only a certain amount of water you can get in the bath. Mm. Yeah. What do you want to take out of the bath and put in yeah. its place so yeah. that you can get this? If it's too late and it's so critical because that's why you've argued it on the list, yeah. then something else has to come out. So, But the choice is yours and you put that choice in their court. That's it. Absolutely, it's their choice. They're the guys that are charged with running the business. Mm. What we're bringing to this team is information about what their organisation is capable of achieving. Yeah. Given its capability and its capacity, those two constraints. And if they've commissioned more than they can cope with, they need to know that. Mm. Because it, in these circumstances, is affecting their ability to fulfil commitments. Yeah. So they need to understand it. Now, when they get into the swing of this, they'll be able to do this hand in hand. This is when you've got change as part of your DNA, and you'll be able to know when to make commitments confidently and when you're taking a bit of a punt and manage accordingly. But you're absolutely right. These are choices, but at least they're informed choices using this approach. And, see, and I like all this. This all sounds very sensible and straightforward. But at the back of my mind, there's this big but which is going on is that it, quite often these choices are made out of politics. Yes. The organisation. And, yeah. you know, the, the fact that, well, old matey boy is going to say, well, look, yeah, I'll definitely start this and have the appearance of starting it because he wants to appear to his boss or sure. to his customers like he's a team player. But actually what he's now doing is he's putting not only this project at risk because he won't deliver it on time, he's putting the other projects at risk by actually even just starting this. So... It's about having those sensible conversations, isn't it, about, yeah. about what the impact is. It is, it is. And that sort of brings me neatly back to the, the, the planning bit. When we're bringing stuff to the table, before we go off and ask the business leaders to, with their own constituents, bring their prospects and suspects and whatever to the table for mm. consideration, we need to steer from the leadership as an holistic group, as, yeah. a, as a single body. Back to that question... What are we trying to achieve? Where do we need to invest? Yeah. Now, if the board and the executive team are clear about the answers to those questions, then the constituents can adjust their focus accordingly to contributions to that, the answer to those questions. Yeah, yeah. Rather than go off individually, as mm. some of them often do, and come back with something that, well, hang on a minute, now we've got to apply a test to it. Yeah. We're still going to apply some sort of test to it because did it answer that question or did it, is it addressing something else? Is it a vanity project, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But if you've had that clear direction set from the outset, and that's one of my prerequisites for embarking on this, 
as a leadership team, you need to act as one, not as a collection of business managers whose primary focus is their own patch. There we go. Yeah. This you have to, your primary focus must be the organisation and your part that you play in contributing to its future success. And as a, as a group, you're agreeing where your emphasis needs to be, mm. and therefore to get the detail to support the journey. That's when they go back to their constituents and say, "Well, okay, how are we going to contribute to these things?" Yeah. But at that point, you've already set some sort of criteria for mm. judging worthwhile investment. Because ultimately, you shouldn't be investing in anything that's not taking you to where you need to get to, either by fending something off or advancing your cause, or both. This all makes perfect sense to me. And just to put some different words around what you're saying, how I would describe that guidance from the leadership, the advice, as you called it earlier, that they give the teams, it's in the form of the strategy and the vision, isn't it? It's direction, yeah. Yeah, that's what they need to do. The unfortunate thing that I see them doing is getting too much involved in the weeds. They don't yes. stay on the outskirts and be the advisors and let the people get on with it. So hence, you know, some of the words you used earlier, very figural, and I think this is part and parcel of the problem because these managers in these sorts of organisations don't collaborate very well together. The, the oh. idea of horse trading, as you said earlier, is Absolutely. That, that, that ends up being a bit of a bun fight. Yeah. It's like, I need this, I need this. And, and there's no idea about collaborating and working together. Whereas oh. actually, that's what's really needed. And that, to me, is the key skill of leadership, is bringing those people together to work more effectively together so that they can yeah. start to work better together. And rather than argue in your corner what it is you think is... Uh, is the thing that's going to be successful. Rather, ask the questions hmm. that are driven and guided by the vision and the strategy to ask yeah. the questions along the lines of, well, well, how does your project XYZ meet this further strategy, this pushing forward? Just give, give me the thinking that demonstrates that. So yeah. how people then almost defend their position, if you like, as to, well, this project has to be here because if you don't do it, this enabler doesn't exist and therefore mm. the strategy doesn't get met. So yeah. hopefully that becomes a better way of having those conversations and discussions. Yeah, I understand entirely why they end up doing the things they do in the way that they do. It is important that it's almost helping them help each other yes. to set themselves up as a group to succeed. Yes. And if they succeed as a group, they succeed as individuals. Bingo. Absolutely. And it's got to come from that. Useful. <laughs> yeah. So if there's some clear direction set at the outset from the top that says, this is where it is as a business, what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. These are the things that we think we need to invest in. Let's understand on the basis of what we do next that there's only so much we're able to cope with and if we try to do too much, we put it all at risk. So yep. let's be sensible. When we know about what we can do, we can then work out to what extent it's possible for us to get close to where we're headed. But actually, it also tells us what we can't do or we can't do at the moment. Yeah. And therefore, we can manage expectations yeah. of our stakeholders, yeah. shareholders, suppliers, customers, oh, da -da -da -da, regulator, yeah. far more readily, far more confidently, yeah. with a well-structured scenario to share yeah. and say, look, 
this is our organisation. So uh, someone who's going to stand up in front of the city and talk about this is you know the investment community. You know, this is where we are as an organisation. This is our, these are our plans. Yeah, and some smart guy can say, well, okay, show me how those are going to come to fruition. It's all fine and dandy. You saying that now that if you get a plan in place that's heavily focused on the investment that you need that recognises the constraints that you have as an organisation in being able to get that stuff done and being and living within those constraints means that the risk is of failure is greatly reduced. So it's much more likely now that you'll deliver when you say because mm. you've eliminated one of the underlying problems to a large extent, doing too much. Then you can gain confidence in your leadership of the organisation and what it's able to achieve. So we're getting to the point where we've got an understanding of how to recognise supply, how to shape demand around that by way of producing a zero-based plan, to the extent that we've got a baseline in place which says that's doable, these things fit together, we may have had to make some compromises on some priorities, but that's because there were things that were mutually exclusive because of the nature of them. But we're not saying no, we're saying not yet. Hmm. And what we have is not an annual plan, we have a rolling plan. There we go. So we're constantly refreshing on the basis of us, and exactly back to airline analogy, as things land, things can take off because there is available airspace, there's available slot on the runway to take off and available space on the runways to land. So it's the constant moving feast, all of which, of course, lends itself to, well, how do we keep it safe? Yeah. What do we need? What does air traffic control actually look like now that we've got a tangible book of work in place that we can recognise as an achievement in itself to get us a, a, a statement of what would work? How do we keep it safe? runway to runway and that's what we'll talk about next awesome so we're so in part four we're going to talk about in part four we're going to talk about having got the plan in place your starting point you're balancing supply and demand you've got your prioritization you've got the all deducts lined up what we need to talk about now is how to keep it safe and so have a rolling portfolio plan that we've got confidence in being able to deliver and also how to, alongside that, continue to grow capability to the point that we can get change into the DNA of an organisation and indeed, as a result, it can become a source of competitive advantage. Awesome. Sounds great. So I look forward to that, John. Um, let, let, let's get that on our backlog to talk about real soon. Thanks, great. John. Thank you. Thank you. Take Cheers. care. Bye-bye.